The title is, Do You Hear What I Hear? And if I get a little too involved because I was typing this up on Monday, I realized this was way too important to me and way too emotionally. I may even sing those words to you a couple times, so just get ready. To set this up, many of us, when we read or hear the text that I'm going to read to you, we hear lots of things. But we must, 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 or we are going to be led down the wrong path and come up with the wrong conclusions for the wrong reasons. We need to read literature based on the context and the culture in which it was written. You would not read Shakespeare, and by the way, if you're reading Shakespeare, I'm sorry, but you would not read Shakespeare based on your 21st century values. You would have to figure out what the values were when Shakespeare wrote it. Heaven forbid you read the classic literature of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. If you read that, assuming it was in your 21st century bias and didn't think about what it was intended originally, you would be very confused. More confused than you are reading it in English, by the way. You may see this coming. You may have heard this before, but it's going to be really important for Advent. A biblical text can never mean what it never meant. If we read a biblical text and we come to a conclusion that it never meant, that's not good because we're maybe missing the point. And if you're getting tired of me saying that, I have that written three times here. If you're tired of me saying that, too bad. Because that's what we're supposed to do. As N.T. Wright says, with his wonderful British accent and his incredibly scholarly word and word, and he says Isaiah a lot, referring to Isaiah chapter 2. The farther we get away from when the biblical text was originally written, the more of a struggle it is for us to understand it. It takes more effort. You need to grab a Bible dictionary and see what that word means in originally, not what it means in your Webster's dictionary. You've got to make an effort. I say that because we're going to see if you hear what I hear, because I suspect you do. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 24, the traditional gospel passage that is read in almost every church that follows the standard Advent pattern this year. Starting at verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know on what day the Lord, your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming... He would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Go ahead. I ask the question now, do you hear what I heard? Do you hear what I hear? What did you hear? Did it sound ominous? Did it sound like some thing happening in the future and magically these people get taken away and those people get taken away and all this stuff. That's what I heard. 
That's what I saw. But more importantly, what did the original hearers hear? Sadly, I can guarantee they did not hear the same thing. You're going to worry about my childhood after I tell some of these things, but let me just do this. I may be reading a lot more during this, so just be prepared. Some of us were trained at a very young age to believe certain things about the return of Jesus. We were handed very large documents from family members who were ministers in a very conservative tradition that traced their Baptist heritage all the way back to John the Baptist. Yeah, I'm not making that up. We were handed the fundamentals of the faith, which were described in so much detail about how Jesus would return. Jesus would be back for right-believing people, and those people would not suffer because they would be taken away before the suffering got really bad. Now, some of you have family members. Maybe you got to experience them this Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is a wonderful time to see family. Yeah, it's great. We love our family. Um, and some of your family members have wonderful Christian faith that you are impressed by, and maybe you should be. And you respect them so much. But they can hardly talk about their faith without talking about the magnificent. I am so looking forward to when Jesus comes back. It's going to be so great when Jesus comes back. Oh, and they seem to like glow when they talk about it. But you're kind of a smart aleck. Maybe that's just me. Maybe it's you. And they're glowing, talking about how wonderful it's going to be. And then you say... What happens to those people who didn't get raptured? And you realize you should not have opened your mouth. Because all of a sudden, there's going to be a five-hour explanation of what happens to all of those people. And they proceed to break down the thousand-year millennial reign, and they explain you, don't you understand? It's clearly in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, the church at Laodicea. You are living in the age of apostasy. Don't you know that? Didn't someone tell you that? And because of that, there's going to be a rapture, but we don't have to worry about what happens to people afterwards. But let me tell you what's going to happen. By the way, there's going to be a rapture for the Jews. And then there's going to be a rapture for the people who were Gentiles who get saved before the rapture of the Jews. And there's going to be another rapture after that. Then there's going to be another It's like a huge thing. And you get worried and they bring out all these charts and graphs and all this stuff. I ask again, when you hear the words in Matthew, do you hear what I hear? Maybe you're in one of those Thanksgiving conversations about this and you really don't want to have it. And you wish someone would yell fire so you could escape. But it doesn't happen. Do you hear what I hear? Hmm. What did the people who Matthew 24 was written to, what did they hear? And why do we use it on the first week of hope? There's got to be a reason. Well, maybe, maybe you heard the gospel passage today the way a well-known story that many of us who teach this and use from a very scholarly book says. Maybe you're like Richard and Lynn. You may know a person named Richard. Richard was given a book written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins by his church friend Lynn. 
He said this book was an amazing thing. It had everything a book could possibly want. It had mystery and drama and action and even a touch of horror. And when Jim Richard finished reading this book, he reflected upon this not well-disguised fiction based upon a dispensational view of the book of Revelation, Matthew chapter 44 and 25. Lynn told him this book changed her life. She said she now had a new understanding of how the end times would transpire, and she felt excited to be a Christian. She said the book helped her figure out how to understand all the symbols of the book of Revelation. She felt that these symbols could be understood because we live in the age in which they can now be understood because they were written specifically for us. And because they were written specifically for us, it's easy for us to understand that we live in the age of Laodicea God wants to spit, out, spit us out, which, by the way, has nothing to do with chapter 3 of Revelation, but just go with me. And she says, it's so cool that God wrote this stuff just for us. Richard admitted this book got his attention from cover to cover. He, too, felt an urgency to study the end times now. He was especially intrigued by the author's view that Jesus would come soon and take followers of the world, and then he would wage war in a special dispensation of a thousand years where he would fight off evil. And he thought that was great. But clearly this story was written before the iPhone because there was a phone call, not a text message. Brandon called. Brandon was in their small group. Brandon was friend with Richard. Brandon went to, went to school and majored in biblical studies. And Richard described the book in glowing terms. Brandon listened and then hesitantly said, and I quote, Actually, Richard, I'm familiar with that book and the theology behind it. I agree it's an exciting book. But to be honest, I think the author's interpretation of the book of Revelation is way off base. And I'm worried about its impact on people. The author treats the book of Revelation as though it's a snapshot of the future, when in fact it's intended to be symbolic. The symbolism is standard apocalyptic literature that we can trace back as far as the Egyptians. This type of language was commonly used by persecuted oppressed people to speak about the dominant power of the day without the dominant power knowing about it. This type of literature was always used to encourage and bring hope to people who were being mistreated in times of difficulty. Richard says the Apostle John wasn't writing about the future. He was writing about then. And the real struggles and the real things. And he tells them that in verse 4 of chapter 1. Brandon goes on to say, I'm afraid Christians will read this book and others like it and waste time trying to interpret current events through the lens of the book the same way some people use horoscopes. Maybe you're like Richard now. You're a bit confused. I ask again, do you hear what I hear? When you hear passages like this, do you think of them just applying to you? Well, this was written right to me, just to me, only me. Eh! There's a red flag there. But that's how we got to this point. That's how we got to this image that all of these things are written specifically for us and all these things we wonder about. And do you ever, when you hear about fighting in the Middle East, do you ever think to yourself, that's okay, it just has to happen because Jesus is going to come back because of that. When you hear about horrible storms and horrible events, oh, well, that just has to happen so Jesus can come back. How did that bring hope to the people that Matthew wrote to in the first century? 
That's my question. How did that happen? Did it? So I ask again, do you hear what I hear? Because I hear from all the training that I had and all the background I had until I went to seminary that this wonderful rapture was going to happen. We were going to be taken away and that's the hope that we have. Fine. Believe that if you like. How does that help people in the first century who are watching family members be killed, having their livelihood taken away, no home to live in, they're homeless simply because they won't offer incense to Caesar to proclaim Caesar as Lord instead of Jesus as Lord? How does saying, you know, in a long time from now, those other people where life is better and it's comfortable, God's going to take care of them, how does that give them hope? It doesn't. A biblical text can never mean what a biblical text never meant. So that I'm consistent on this, since I know I'm fairly emotional on this subject, since you're going to hear next week how our bad view of this pushes, has pushed two generations of people away from Christianity. Yeah, I really said that, and I really mean it. We Be here next week. It should be awesome. Um, Matthew 24 and 25 has one main point, and only one main point. If you are paying attention during the children's moment, you know what the one main point is so that we don't miss this. Be ready. Live your life if it's the God who died for you on the cross and rose from the grave. Obviously, I didn't spell that correctly. Rose from the grave was for, for you was coming for a long-term visit. You're supposed to live as if Jesus is going to pop in and not just for a moment. He's going to be here a long time. Would that change how you lived your life? And in the most childlike answer I have ever heard, and I really like it, to children, that sounds kind of boring. But the God who died for you requests that you live that way. Not live in hope that everything will be taken away. Not live in hope that the world will be destroyed. Not live in hope in all those things. So what does this text really mean, and why do we read it during Advent? Because the original hearers of these words lived in hope that they could endure to the end. The reason this issue comes up in the beginning of chapter 24, they're at the Mount of Olives. According to Zechariah chapter 14, the Son of Man is going to appear on the Mount of Olives. The disciples innocently ask Jesus, hey, is this it? Are we here for the fireworks and stuff? And Jesus rolls his eyes in typical Jesus fashion. And tell some story about the temple and how the temple will be destroyed and it's destroyed in a few decades later. And he says, but you know the Son of Man is going to appear. But what I need you to do and what you can do because of what's going to happen in a couple days is you can endure to the end because you will have hope. For those of you here, feel free to consult the scriptures that are on the screen. Verse 13 is, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not the one who knows the right stuff, thinks the right stuff, believes the right stuff. His magic going to be taken away. It's the one who endures to the end because they had hope. Not hope in some magical, mystical thing in which God comes back and we get to watch that, which is, sounds great. That's not the point in the first century, because a biblical text can never mean what a biblical text never meant. Stanley Harawas, 
an incredible theologian who grew up in a tradition way less moral than mine. Because Stanley Hauerwas has this famous habit of using curse words in the middle of his sermons. It's kind of disconcerting. But he says, if we are to live out what God calls us to be, urgent expectation should lead to thoughtful preparation. Jesus, Paul, and John's teaching, what we refer to as the end of the world, is not about escaping the suffering. It's about living with hope in the suffering. The people who originally heard this went, oh my goodness, after the resurrection, because you can't figure this out until after the resurrection. Oh, this is what Jesus was trying to say. This is why Jesus didn't solve all the problems in the world. Jesus came to show us to have hope in the resurrection that he was going to overcome death. And we can have hope in our struggles because we know we can overcome death. That's where the hope comes from. Not from some magical mysteries thing where we magically get taken away and it's all wonderful and we get to make fun of other people and all this other stuff. Hope is based in the resurrection. When Matthew writes this to a predominantly Jewish audience, they get the Mount of Olives reference. They get the linking of the term Son of Man from Daniel and Ezekiel. They get this. You live in the United States in the 21st century. Something I don't have time to unpack. Hopefully I'll I'll write it next week. It's a general rule, especially anything in the United States. And I can't believe I haven't said this a hundred times already. Any theological movement that was developed around 1830 in the United States... I have words that I usually use for those, but none of them are sermon appropriate. I'll sound like Stanley Harawas. They're not good. Many of your Christian cults started about 1830. The idea that there would be levels in heaven. This is all packed together, by the way, in case you don't know. There'd be levels in heaven that only special people who could crack the special code of the book of Revelation which any first century Jew and Gentile could solve it in about five seconds, could crack that code. Everything was special. That all developed about 1830. And then it was propagated in what you know is the Schofield Study Bible, which was given to almost every single person who participated in the Civil War. Totally off script. You should detect that by the fact that I'm way away from my manuscript. I don't like study notes in Bibles because study notes and subtitles and verses are not inspired by God. The Schofield Study Bible was given to a bunch of people before they went to fight the worst war ever and said, everything's got to be really, really bad, but don't worry. Let it be really awesome and let it just go to literally hell in a handbasket and then God's going to come. Got worse in the U.S. because we had this thing called World War I and World War II. You may have heard of them. And there's a reason this idea became so popular. You've been inundated with it much of your life. Quickly, so I can just express this, because I realize many of you are going, is he saying what I think he's saying? Yes. Am I saying the exact opposite of everything I was trained to do early on in my ministry life? Yep. 
because a biblical text can never mean what a biblical text never meant. When I checked on Monday, the average church-going person in the United States, 85 to 90% of them believe in a literal rapture, a literal thousand years, and all the things that go with that. They think the Left Behind movies are the most scholarly thing ever written. Last time I checked, slightly under 10% of seminary graduate students who have graduated from seminary and graduate school agree with that. Because a biblical text can never mean what a biblical text never meant. If you're getting your hope from something that was not the same hope that they had in the first century, maybe your hope is misplaced. But John, that's what I hear when I hear those passages. I do too. That's not what they heard in the first century. They did not hear everything was going to be wonderful and I'll fly away. They heard, I can have faith because of Jesus. The reason we use this text the first week of Advent, and by the way, next year it'll be in, it'll be in Mark, it'll be the same passage. Oh, by the way, next year it'll be in Luke. The year after that it'll be in Luke, it'll be the same passage. We use it every year, this passage. Because it brought hope in the first century. And we light these candles and we pray these prayers and we read these readings so that we can embrace the traditions that have been passed down from the Old Testament to the first century to us. So if you hear this text and you visualize it only giving you hope because you're going to be saved from some wonderful tribulation that's supposedly going to happen, you're not hearing what they heard. And I ask again, Do we hear what they hear? When they heard this passage, when Matthew was writing to Jewish people predominantly and writing to them because their Jewish family members had kicked them out because they had followed Jesus, but they had lost their jobs because they had followed Jesus. The Romans were hunting them and killing them because they had followed Jesus. It didn't make them feel one bit better well, you know, a long time from now, this person named Darby is going to come up and he's going to come up with this idea and we're going to be able to translate the book of Revelation in Matthew 24 and those people are going to escape and they're going to be raptured. It's going to be awesome, make some cool movies. That doesn't make them feel any better. What made them feel better? What gave them hope that was true hope, not just hope in the lottery? That Jesus said the Son of Man would appear And the kingdom of God would start. Son of man. Every single reference to the son of man from the Old Testament. And every single time that Jesus uses the son of man. The son of man does not come down. The son of man goes up. He's seen in the clouds. In his glory. And it gives them hope. Because they know that death can be overcome. We have hope during Advent because Jesus showed us that death could be overcome. Not that suffering was going to disappear. Not that we would, oh, we'll have an escape hatch. That God showed us that death could be overcome. Peter writes, or the writer of 1 Peter, if you prefer. I think Peter wrote it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
He starts his letter with, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not a living hope that there will be something wonderful and I'll escape it and I won't have to suffer. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we embrace this principle, we embrace the same hope that the people in the first century heard these words and pressed on and cared for babies that nobody wanted, that adopted slaves that nobody wanted, that did things that nobody could think they would want to do. They did. And they overthrew the Roman Empire by love. Living hope. This Advent season... Maybe you need to listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this in gentleness and reverence. Yeah, I have trouble with the last part. But the hope within you is that hope that everything is going to be wonderful and this world's going to be blown up. And God's just going to create something brand new and you're going to be there because you know special stuff? Or is your hope based in the fact that a resurrection occurred, a historical fact that you can verify using historical information and standard historical method, and that you can overcome death by being a follower of Jesus? What should your hope be based in? I can tell you what it was based in in the first century because a biblical text can never mean what a biblical text never meant. Let's pray before I start foaming at the mouth about this. Okay, let's pray. Holy God, thank you so much that you are the Almighty. Thank you so much that through all the mistakes we make, all the mistakes that I have made theologically through the years, all the mistakes I have made in trying to figure out what the biblical text meant originally, thank you that you're still there. Thank you that you Forgive me for all the scary things that I have thought. Help us this Advent season to embrace the hope that was built upon you becoming flesh and walking among us and living and rising from the dead. Thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen.